Do you know the name Sarah Evans? You might know somebody named Sarah Evans, but I don't know that that's probably the person I'm talking about. The image you see on your screen now is is Sarah Evans, Sarah Key Evans to be particular. Sarah K. Evans Park exists in North Carolina. Um, Sarah K. Evans was Private Evans back in the year 1952 when she was on her way home from her first military assignment when she refused to move to the back of the bus. 1952, she was taken to jail and detained for 13 hours. She would end up suing the Interstate Commerce Commission for discrimination, and despite finally winning that judicial victory in November of 1955, three years later, the ruling was not enforced until 1961. That same year in 1955, earlier in, the, in March, when uh, Sarah's... Um, judicial case was gaining some attention. In March of 1955, a a young black teenager named Claudette Colvin, whose picture you'll see now, Claudette Colvin refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white person. She had grown up learning about the stories of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, and she was feeling inspired by Private Evans's witness, and she was emboldened to resist the injustice that she experienced. Can you imagine 15 years old? As a result, she was handcuffed and arrested. And just like Sarah Evans, her story was hidden until more recent years. My friends, before there was Rosa Parks, whose name I trust we all know, who is the civil rights icon that prompted the Montgomery bus boycott that same year in 1955. Before there was Rosa Parks, there was Sarah K. Evans and Claudette Colvin, in the same way that before there was Jesus, there was this prophet who cleared the way in the wilderness, a prophet named John the Baptist, a voice crying out, preparing, doing the work that didn't get as noticed, the name that not everybody still remembers, but an integral and important part of the story. And that's where the Gospel of Mark begins. We're in a worship series this Advent season, this season of preparation for Christmas. Um, We're in this Advent season, and we're, we're reflecting on the idea of when love comes down this season of worship. And we're looking at specifically the way that each of the four Gospels, four weeks, four Gospels, isn't that nice and tidy? We're looking at the way each of the four Gospels introduces us to the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus is here to do. In the Gospel of Matthew, which we looked at last week, Jesus is presented as a king, but not like David, a liberator, but not quite like Moses, a new point of creation, though not like Adam. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to begin actually not with Jesus, but with John. So let's begin. The Gospel of Mark says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as it was written in the prophecy of Isaiah. And now Mark quotes Isaiah saying, look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare a way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. 
And then Mark in his own voice says, John was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives. That's a word that simply translates from repent because we know that's a tricky word for a lot of people. What that means is change their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. Now, that's a preacher head count by Mark. Everyone in Judea and all of Jerusalem was being baptized. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts, kids, that's grasshoppers, and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pause there for now. I want to talk about, this is a text that, that is one of the texts that we will read on a regular basis during the second week of Advent. That's the week this is, the second week of Advent. Because even though it doesn't deal with baby Jesus and all, we just, we love the nativity and we love baby Jesus. Um, this is a text that fits the Advent theme about preparation. That's what Advent is. If, if you're unfamiliar with this liturgical season, because I know a lot of people that are with us online or in the room come from a Christian tradition, if you come from a Christian tradition that does not celebrate Advent to recognize that liturgical season. So Advent is a time of preparation. And sometimes we will substitute the word preparation and we'll place the word wait in instead. It's a season of waiting. But waiting is an ambiguous term, is it not? There's a lot of different ways to wait. And I don't know that Advent is meant to inspire us to all different types of waiting. As I was reading this text and thinking about the kind of preparation um, that, that we're in in this season of Advent, as I began to think about John the Baptist with his camel-haired clothing and eating locusts and wild honey, I got hungry. Anybody else? <laughs> So one thing I love about changing seasons, one thing I love about changing seasons is the fact that it means I get to cook new food. Um, I live my life revolved around food. I don't know if anybody else in here does. I travel based upon where I want to eat. Um, I get excited about seasons based upon the new recipes I get to bust out again. And, And when the weather gets colder, it means I get to do a lot of the recipes that call for that big soup pot, right? I love my warm weather or my cold weather recipes. And one of my favorite ones that I've gotten into recently is making my own gumbo. I'm warning you, you're going to get hungry for lunch by the end of this sermon. Luckily, we have a little meal coming. So gumbo, if you're you're unfamiliar, I'm not from Louisiana or New Orleans, but my mom's side has a lot of folks living in southern Mississippi. I've spent a good amount of time down by the Gulf Coast. I've spent a lot of time in the city of New Orleans. I've tried a lot of gumbo in my life. And uh, gumbo is one of those foods that everybody's got hot sports opinions about what does or does not go into a gumbo and how one should make a gumbo. All I know is what tastes good to me and what doesn't. And also, if you don't have okra in it, it's not gumbo. There, I said it. Okay. Literally, the name comes from an African word for okra. So you're just wrong if you disagree. Um, It's fine. You can be wrong. You can be wrong. Um, So here's the thing about gumbo. Everybody loves to take a bite of gumbo. At least normal good people do. And (laughs) the preparation for gumbo is a different thing. Because it's really just kind of two phases to make a pot of gumbo. 
Phase two is like throw everything in and let it simmer, right? But the first phase, anyone who knows how to make a, a good pot of gumbo knows that the first phase, the important phase, the tricky phase, is making the roux, right? Roux is a seemingly simple thing. It is roughly equal parts oil and flour, or, bu or melted butter and flour, and everyone's got their perfect little ratio they've got to get, you know. But essentially, you, you mix the two together, and you let it on a low heat cook in this soup pot by itself. And at first, it's this sort of uh, creamy white kind of, uh, you know, uh, bechamel sauce, you might say, if you are very fancy. Um, but over time, it cooks, and it cooks, and it gets darker and darker and darker over the course of sometimes an hour, even. You're literally watching a pot boil, basically, right? I mean, it's getting a little bit darker, a little bit darker, until finally it's almost like this rich chocolatey, and that's when you know it's ready. Then you throw everything else in, you let it simmer, and it's done in like 30 minutes. But that, ooh, making that roux, that's the critical part. Now, here's the thing. The reason why most people love tasting gumbo but don't love making gumbo is because you can't leave that pot, especially if you're new to making a pot of gumbo. When you're making that roux, you have to stir it almost constantly because if you walk away even for three minutes, it could burn, and then guess what? You're starting all over again, and you're probably giving up on making gumbo. And so there's this constant motion. You're standing there and you're waiting, but you're working and you're keeping it moving and you can't even tell if it's changing. And you're even going crazy going, is it getting darker? Is my stove on? How is heat working right now? I don't understand the world I'm living in, right? But then over the course of an hour, suddenly over time, it gets that dark chocolate and you go, wow, there it is. And your shoulder hurts and you've been standing there working on this little thing for so long. And that's what I think Advent is kind of like. That's what I think this style of waiting is like. It's not a passive waiting. John the Baptist is not someone who's simply sitting around going, well, he's coming. No, it's an active waiting. It's a standing over a soup pot and stirring the roux kind of waiting, knowing that the big magical moment is coming when everyone gets to take that spoonful and go, wow, it's so delicious. And you go, oh, I'm so glad it is, you know. Um, but it's the little moments before the moment. It's the little moments before the moment that matters. Advent is not this passive or idle thing. It's an act of waiting. It's the space in the wilderness cleared away so that Christ can break through. It's the desire, as John says and proclaims, for something to be different, for our hearts and our lives to be changed. It's that desire before receiving the one who can, in fact, change everything. And I'm realizing this Advent season that we tend to overvalue significant moments, right? Significant moments. And we tend to undervalue the space between them. We tend to tell our life story as a series of significant moments. We don't tell people about what we did on that random Tuesday afternoon where it looked like nothing was happening. And yet that's just as important as you're stirring the roux. We tend to overvalue the significant moments in life. We tend to undervalue the space between them. John the Baptist gives us a witness for what it looks like in the space between to clear paths in the wilderness, to make our own paths straight, to prepare our hearts and our lives to be changed. So then Mark's gospel continues, and it says this, about that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus is already a grown man in Mark's gospel. There's no baby Jesus here, I'm sorry. 
And John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the spirit like a dove coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I dearly love and you I find happiness. At once, the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. Let's talk about Satan in Advent, right? Just kidding. Kind of, or maybe. You don't know. Now you're nervous. I feel like this is a text that we only kind of half see a lot of the times. That first half, ooh, we love that first half, don't we? Verses up to verse 11. We love that baptismal story. In fact, we got a whole day around it in the Christian liturgical calendar, the baptism of the Lord Sunday. Oh, yes. I mean, who doesn't love that scene of John lowering him into the waters? He comes up, the heavens break open, the dove, which is like the most awesome of birds, flies down, and the Spirit is there descending, and God says, Jesus, you're just so awesome, and I just love you so much. We're like, yes. And Mark says, the second Jesus hears God say, I love you, my beloved, you make my heart so happy. The Spirit forces him into the wilderness, it says. That word forces is important. It's a Greek word, ekbalo, to mean cast out. Literally, it's the same word later on in this chapter in the Gospel of Mark that, that Mark will use to say Jesus was casting out demons, right? Ekbalo, Jesus was cast out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, not just to go camping, but to go toe-to-toe with Satan, right? Like, this is not a fun little excursion. This is, this is his preparatory season before he could begin his public witness and ministry. He's not even dry yet from the River Jordan. No one's gotten this poor guy a towel when the Holy Spirit pushes him out into the wilderness. My friends, when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we receive not only this deep-seated truth that we are God's beloved, And we need to, in this Advent season, prepare our hearts by receiving that clear truth that we are God's beloved. Do you hear me, church? You are God's beloved. But we also receive a Holy Spirit power that will send us, cast us, make us even feel forced at times into wilderness experiences. And Scott, what are those? You're talking about Satan and you're losing me fast. I know, I know. Wilderness experiences, I think about our baptismal vows that we take in the United Methodist Church. And the next time you hear them, listen for one of the vows, which is we commit to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. We commit to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. The Gospel of Mark says we commit to meet Satan in the desert for a showdown. That's Mark's language. doesn't have to be yours. You can call it any number of things. Maybe that means standing up to a bully in your school or in your work or in your community. Maybe it means lending your voice or your strength to a cause that you deeply believe in, that you believe God's kingdom work is about in this world in a real way. To resist spiritually and practically evil, injustice, and oppression. That's what a wilderness experience looks like. And the Holy Spirit says that's a non-negotiable, right? In Christ, we know we are God's beloved, and we discover that God believes in us Oh, I hope you hear this today. 
because there's a version of this that would, that would be so much worse. It's, it, it's not an empty affirmation that God is offering us. It's not God saying, you are my beloved. You are so, so awesome, Jim Mitchell. Now just sit over there and don't touch anything. Don't break the furniture, please. Just stay out of the way. Sorry, Jim, I know you're chuckling. He's like, that's not what I was expecting to have happen. Yeah, I know your names. That's right. It's not God saying, you're so great. Now be quiet and sit down and go off to the side while I do my thing. It's, I believe in you. You are my beloved. You are incredible. And I can't wait to see what you do. Because the wilderness Satan, evil, injustice, oppression. You fill in the blank however you need to. It doesn't stand a chance, God says, because I've got you. That's an affirmation. Are we prepared to receive the good news that God believes in us and to go where that truth can take us? So then Mark's gospel continues, and we see the beginnings of Jesus' fledgling ministry. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this is good news. So that's his mission statement, so to speak. As Jesus passed alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They were fishermen, so they were throwing fishing nets into the sea. Come and follow me, he said, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they said, that guy's weird. No, we're good. No, I'm sorry. That wasn't what it said. Right away, they left their nets and followed him. After going a little further, he saw James and John, Zebedee's sons, in their boat repairing the fishing nets. At that very moment, he called them. They followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers. So Jesus begins his ministry with a proclamation. A proclamation is an important theme. Good news is an important theme in the gospel of Mark because of the type of gospel that it is. Mark's gospel is a little bit different than the other ones. It's the earliest one that we have recorded. It was written before Matthew and Luke and John. It was written about 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection um, because gospels weren't written down very quickly afterwards. Why is that? Because they thought Jesus might come back on Tuesday and writing down stories took a lot of time and it was costly and it wasn't the way that people received stories in those days. In those days, they received stories through storytellers, through orators, public speakers, and uh, people had an amazing capacity for remembering long, long, lengthy stories like the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark is almost like someone is sitting there and writing down while while the, this gospel is being presented to a community of new or not yet believers, right? That's the gospel of Mark, and that's why it sounds kind of hurried and rushed, because it's the way we tell stories, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and as you read the gospel of Mark, you'll notice this. Proclamation, as I said, is important because these people are, are hearing a proclamation that is the gospel of Mark, and they're hearing Jesus within this gospel offer his own proclamation, a, a euangelion or good news. It's a word in Greek that would be associated with something that you'd hear from Caesar, perhaps, or an official kingdom statement, the euangelion, the good news, the proclamation. And so following Jesus' baptism and wilderness season of preparation, he immediately gets to work announcing his mission and then, importantly, inviting others into it. 
It's like you can see when Jesus is submerged into the waters of baptism, the the ripple effect already beginning to go out as the waters ripple away. He invites these fishermen to join his movement first. Why fishermen? What an interesting choice. I mean, on the one hand, yes, Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor, so who better to invite into your movement than the working class? And then it's also regionally appropriate. He's recruiting folks near the Sea of Galilee. There's going to be some fishermen. Maybe they've got some things they could teach him about being aware of that population, what they need to hear. But maybe we shouldn't overlook the obvious. And that's this water motif that Mark is playing with in this first chapter that continues to grow. Rather than catching fish and and taking them up out of the water, Jesus is helping them lead others into the water. Rather than casting their nets, they're allowing the Spirit to cast them into the world. In, In fact, The people listening to Mark's gospel in the first century and even us sitting here 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in Mark's first chapter caught in that net saying, the invitation is open. Jesus is now come to you. You're hearing these words. You're coming to know this Christ. And the audience of Mark's gospel hearing these words, they're coming to understand, we are coming to understand a key theological concept about Christ. Jesus is not just historical. What I mean by that, Jesus isn't just a story that happened one time, but Jesus and Jesus' work is also eternal, beyond time, limitless, even today. Advent is not just about preparing, my friends, to hear a story that happened one time long ago. It's about preparing to hear that story become our own. It's not preparing for a memory. It's preparing for a lived reality here and now in this moment today. Mark shows us in chapter 1 through the baptism of the Lord and through this initial invitation, a beloved moment that invites us into to a beloved movement. When we get so hyper-focused on the, on the moment, and, and don't get me wrong, the moment is important. Baptism is important. The nativity is important. The birth of Christ is important. These things matter, but it's not everything. In fact, I believe that Mark is arguing that for those of us who are hearing these words, who are being invited in, Mark is proclaiming it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what happens when we encounter Jesus, whether as a baby in a manger or as a voice in the wilderness calling us out of our life as usual and into something else. Mark is completely disinterested in a Christmas that has nothing more than feel-good stories and memories of a Jesus that changed the world a long time ago. Mark is asking us to prepare ourselves for God's story to become our own, for the proclamation to live in our lungs, and for Jesus to change not just the history books, but our today and our tomorrow. And so embrace the space before the big moment. Know that you are beloved and God believes in you. And may we not just be moved by love for a moment, but may we join this loving movement. Amen.